1: What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about rulebooks. We're talking about how to write a great rulebook, a rulebook that's easy to teach, that your players love, that they don't dread, that's not just this big waste of time, and then they got to go watch a video. No, a rulebook that actually works. We're talking to Dustin Schwartz, a professional rulebook writer. Dustin, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thanks Gabe, thanks for having
1: me on. Yeah, man, I'm excited to hear from you cuz you're a pro. You're not just some guy we picked up off the street. You're not just somebody who has written uh, rule books for his own games. No, you you write rule books professionally. Like people pay you. And so I am I'm stoked, man, just to kind of get your thoughts and ideas and, and opinions and advice on this. But just real quick, maybe people never heard of you, never seen your name at the bottom of a rule book. Uh, kind of give me your bio. Who are you? How'd you get into games and writing rule books and all that good stuff?
2: Sure. Yeah, it was uh, you know, similar to so many people's entry stories to the hobby. It was probably five years ago. I think my brother gave me a copy of Ticket to Ride, and you go down the rabbit hole from there, right? Yeah. Uh, that, that was my story, too. And it was 2014, I think, so it's about four years ago now, that um, Matt Riddle, you, people might know him, mm-hmm. uh, designer, and he put out an all-call like, hey, we've got a rule book for a game that's coming out. Anybody want to look it over? And I, I looked it over and sent him some feedback, and he's like, this is really good. We're going to use everything you put in here. And so I kind of planted a seed of an idea that was fun. Could I do that more? Would it be useful? And uh, so from then on, it's just been rule book after rule book. It's been fun.
1: Yeah. So, but how did you get connected with more people? Did you just kind of approach people and say, Hey, I'll do this for free or do you need some editing or proofreading work? Like how did you kind of really get that ball rolling?
2: Yeah, that was, that was a lot of it early on. It was just sort of like, Hey, I, I love this hobby. This is a way that I can kind of give back, you know? And so, it was usually folks on the indie circuit. I kind of felt like, you know, hey, they, you know, one-man operation kind of a thing. Uh, let me see what I can do to help out. And So there was a lot of that for the first, you know, 12, 18 months or so. And then someone who I'd worked with said, well, you really ought to charge people for this. This is like a, <laughs> this is a skill. And so I kind of agreed with that. And so I uh, tried to take it, you know, more of a part-time basis from there. But connecting with people, a lot of it was social media. Yeah. Um, you know, there's... You've, I know you've talked to a lot of publishers and designers and the uh, Twitter crowd with the board game community, there's a really cool nucleus of people there. And uh, that's where I've made a lot of contacts is through Twitter. And um, so I'd say that's my number one source of connecting with people. And then, you know, it helps that now I can say, well, I've done such and such games or even just this many games. And, you know, that kind of helps. Okay. He's not a, a fresh face. He's been doing this. He's got some experience
1: Yeah, definitely. You get your foot in the door, and then that opens up a whole lot more doors down the road. I'm working on a book right now uh, that's game design advice from different game designers. And so the first few people I approached about it were people I already had some kind of relationship with. They had been on the show or I knew them, friend of a friend kind of thing. And I said, hey, will you help me with this? And then once I got their responses, then I started going out to all the designers, people I have never met, never talked to, and said, hey, these really cool designers that you've heard of, they are part of this. Do you want to be a part of this? And, and a lot of them are saying yes. And so I think there's so much value into just get out there, right? And like you said, get on Twitter. Now, did you like cold call people? Like how did you kind of get your foot in the door? Really, did you send like direct messages? Or, or what, did, what did you do as far as approaching people you had never met before?
2: Yeah, in the early on, it was a lot of folks were putting out a a call for help, you know, and so at that level, there's there's only so much merit I I would argue in like a a crowdsourcing your rulebook, you know, but uh, but what merit there is, I was I was trying to help out from from that end of things, and so that was that was a lot of it in the early going was people were asking, not me specifically, but just uh, Kickstarter backers in particular. I've been backing games on Kickstarter for a long time and. Um, that was sort of my segue into like helping indie folks. There's a lot of a lot of people taking their projects to Kickstarter to get them funded, so it was a lot of that in the early going. People putting out a call, I'll call for, hey, anybody who's got the time and the inclination to help out, send us your thoughts. So I would, and sometimes it was through BGG, uh, a lot of other times just direct email and stuff that they, you know, sent out.
1: Yeah. Now. Tell me about your training, because there's no like major in college for rule book writing. But did you have any kind of training going in? Basically, what I'm asking how did how did you get good at this?
2: That's an interesting question, because I you know I had no formal training. Uh, you know, my undergrad was not in writing or anything. But I had been I had a job at the time when I when I first started doing this. I was working as a marketing writer at a small company that made a curriculum for kids programs, and so kind of helped hone some of those skills but um, also just realized that I, I had them um, and that I enjoyed that aspect of of writing good uh, copy, you know. Um, marketing, of course, very different from the more technical, you know, information-loaded stuff you do in a rule book, but there's plenty of crossover there and found it all fun and, you know, found out that it was something I was good at, so...
1: Yeah, when people ask me about rule books, and you give me your opinion on this. Just tell me if I'm wrong or, or right in my, my opinion. Uh, I tell them it's, it's a mixture between technical writing and storytelling because you're kind of finding that place in the middle where you're telling people step by step, but you're also trying to tell some kind of a story so it's not just like reading a manual for you know how to put together an IKEA you know, f- piece of furniture from IKEA or something like that. Like You want it to be more than just that. Is that the right place, or would you say it leans a little more towards technical or a little more towards storytelling? Where would you put it?
2: Uh, it's an interesting question. I think that there's you want the the strong technical soundness to be there, mm-hmm. but you want it to be the skeleton, and you don't want anybody to see that. Yeah. What you're saying, I totally agree with. You want uh, what people read. You know, you want it to be conversational in tone, um, and you want it to be easy reading. You know, make yeah. it as easy as you can, while still you know that the skeleton is there that uh, proofs it against. Um, all the questions that you know, hopefully, someone might throw at it.
1: Right. I want I want to talk to you a little bit more about terminology and things like that in a minute. But first, let's talk about why this is important. Why is it important to have a good, not even a good, a great rule book for your game?
2: Well, you know, it's, it gets that game played. I mean, I can't tell you how many games. And you'd think that I I would have a greater tolerance for uh, <laughs> a a rule book, right? Because I know that it's tough to do right. Yeah. But sometimes open it up and within the first four pages, you just get stumped on something, can't figure it out. And, well, I tell you what, there's those other half a dozen games over there that I know we've already played, we know how to do it. Yeah. Let's, just, let's just do one of those tonight instead, you know? And, so, and, and that's coming from folks like you know, yourself and me who are, who are really deep into the hobby right. and not even just your person who's coming at it. And, and if you want to lower the barrier to accessibility uh, for the hobby, for your game in particular... They're really valuable, really valuable to have a good rule book.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think this is one thing where board games really struggle against something like a video game. Where, because you're having to read something. And, and so you're, you're, that's a big challenge when you're trying to teach out of a book, as opposed to being able to teach through the game like you can in a video game. You can have that tutorial as part of just the game mechanics. And you know, you're just playing the game and learning, oh, A does this and B does that. And when I pull the right trigger, it blows up. Okay, cool. And you learn as you go, but you can't with a game, or at least not yet. Maybe we're figuring, figuring that out later. But like, what would you say makes a great rule book? Like when you read somebody else's rule book, or even one of your own, you go, hey, this is awesome. What, what like, really sticks out to you as making it awesome?
2: I think strong uh, layout uh, as far as not necessarily the graphics, but that, it, that is an important part of it, but just the, the structure of it. Um, guide, guide me through the process of learning this game well. You know, in the same way that uh, if you go to your, your local game night, uh, you probably know the people who are really good game teachers and the folks who struggle with that skill. Um, and you much rather learn it from you know, someone in the former category. So the same thing with the rule book if all the information is there, then someone who's good at learning games is, is gonna figure it out eventually. Yeah. But uh, if you, you know, really think through the best possible way to present that information, uh, put your, you know, do they need to know this important concept before they even, you know, jump into the rest of the game? If so, then maybe do something unorthodox and put that at the start of the rule book. So questions you gotta ask yourself is, you know, what's the best way to present this information?
1: Yeah, so layout is huge and, and I totally agree. If you know if you're learning things in the wrong order or something like that, it's gonna really make it difficult to learn the game in general. Anything else that you look at and you go, okay, every rule book needs this or something like that.
2: Uh definitely a well thought out and consistent set of keywords. Mm. Uh you know, nothing drives me badtier than uh someone who's using this word over here, you know. Well it says you know, it says Movement over here, but then over here they're talking about travel or something like that. Are, are those separate things? Those two different actions? No, just someone wasn't quite as consistent with their keywords as what they should have been. It leaves that doubt in the player's mind, or you spend 15 minutes flipping through the rule book trying to figure out where that rule is defined. Well, you already knew it. They just were careless. So, you know, investigate that in the early going, I think, because sometimes. Um, not only do you want to be consistent, but with your, your pool or your glossary of keywords, um, you can also really make some good shortcuts for learning with your keywords too. You know, if, if you've got a very difficult concept or something that, you know, takes a few sentences to explain, figure out a good keyword that means that then you only have to say it once in the rule book. And then from then on, once they know that travel is, you know, the conglomeration of these four rules, then you can just say travel whenever you mean that. And, you know, people who work for Wizards of the Coast doing, you know, card games or whatever, they, they've got this kind of skill on lockdown, right? Because you have to with card text, uh, something that uh, the board game space, I think, struggles still a little bit with. But it's coming along.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. Just streamlining all that stuff down. Now, how do you feel about a glossary or having something in the back of the rule book as far as, as that goes? Do you use glossaries in your books? It depends.
2: Some of them do. Uh, I think there's kind of like a, you just have to decide are you at that tipping point where there's enough information that it's worth, you know, having that reference? Or are there just a couple of key terms and they're defined, you know, in line and you just, you know, you think it's intuitive enough, the players will pick up on it. But yeah, once you get to, you know, a certain point where you've got a whole bunch of keywords, especially if you're using words in less than 100% intuitive ways. Um, then for sure you want to have that that reference guide. I think one thing I think of is uh, bottom of the ninth, the uh, two-player baseball game, right? And they they learned uh, the dice hate me crew. They learned that 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 first edition rulebook. Of course, there was a ton of baseball knowledge in there. Some of it, you know, kind of assumed on the players part. And so I I helped them with their comprehensive rulebook. They included with uh, the expansion later on, and uh, we made sure we included a a long list of of keywords at the back so that. A person who comes to the game with zero real-world baseball knowledge can still play the, you know, the simulation.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point. Is, is being aware of prior knowledge and what you know isn't necessarily what the players know, and giving them giving them the opportunity to learn that information without having to Google it is probably a better way to do it. Now, when do you suggest somebody should start working on their rulebook? I mean, if they're just you know prototyping and they've just barely got a prototype to the table, should they start then and go ahead and start writing rules down, or when do you suggest they begin that process?
2: I think once you want to get your game out for blind playtesting, I think that's when you, your rulebook and its form uh, starts to matter. Um, if you're still just, you know, you're at your every playtest um, and you're teaching it to players, it doesn't really matter that much. It's simply just for you, just like an, a notebook, really. You know, you tweak it as you make adjustments to your own rule set. But once you have other players who you want without assistance to be able to decipher your rule set and play, you know, the game experience you designed, then it starts to matter. And you start to think about those things, you know, uh, are they going to butt up against this question here? Um, how can I answer that? So I, th- I think once you hit that, and it's unfortunate, but I think that right now that is not the, the uh, time frame that most people are starting to look seriously at their rule books. People who are? Kudos to them, I, I work with some of them, but um, right now it's kind of like the last thing you do uh, before you send it to press. And sometimes you just have to, uh, but I argue that the definitely the better method is to get that going in the, in the early stages of your blind playtesting if you're doing that.
1: Yeah, for sure, if you're gonna skimp somewhere or cut a corner, don't cut this corner, right? Take the time it takes to really write it, to proofread it, to edit it, because again, if this thing doesn't work, your game doesn't work. If people can't figure out how to play, they're not going to play. Like you said, they're going to play another game. And so talk, me, talk to me about your process. When you're sitting down to write a rule book, maybe somebody's you know, coming in and say, hey, we want you to write a, uh, a rule book for our game. Like, tell me about your process. What do you do? How do you start? All that good stuff.
2: Sure. Uh, depends on what someone's looking for. You know, Sometimes uh, they've got a, a fairly polished rule book, um, and it simply needs a little finishing touch. My favorite ones to work with are the ones that are basically just uh, a notebook. These are all the rules because uh, you know the the person who's coming to me, designer, publisher, whatever they they have the expectation that uh, just arrange this in the way that makes best sense. Um, so <laughs> that's all you got to do, right?
1: <laughs> like,
2: it's like handing me a box of Lego and right. like uh, build this. So that's my favorite thing to do. Uh, but so so if if someone's coming to from that approach, then the first thing that I do is you know it's kind of like uh, name or label all of the major pieces of that rule book and then just start doing swaps. You know, does, does this work better over here? How does the structure work? So kind of build that that skeleton uh, first and then from there, you know, you start getting into detail after that.
1: Yeah, now do they send you a like prototype copy of the game as well so you can kind of really understand what these pieces are, what these cards are, that kind of thing, or they just give you uh, just the information in a Word doc?
2: That's, that's ideal to have a prototype on hand. Um, and I, I recommend that I don't require it because sometimes people's timeframes are just too short, you know, but it definitely is ideal because I can't tell you how many times, you know, there's a, there's only so much, even from someone who reads technical documents as a profession now, you know, you read something on the screen and there are scenarios that present themselves when the game's on the table. Yeah, you know, corner cases whatever various interactions that you can't pick up just from reading the document so definitely having the prototype lets you see those you know it, it's you are seeing what the players will see butting up against the experiences the players will have and if you can anticipate those then so much easier for the end user
1: yeah for sure now we talked about this momentarily earlier as far as Writing a rule book that's teachable, how do you do that? How do you write a rule book that's easy to teach that, you know, when people are reading it, they're not having to go, wait, hold on. So I got to, let me reread this. And it like waste all this time. Like, how do you do that? How do you make it so it's easy?
2: I, th- I think this part is simply enough uh, easier than it even seems to, you know, there's, there's a few really basic things you can do that dramatically I feel increase how easy, how accessible your rule book is. And I, I think one of them is use lots of white space. Okay. It seems, it seems so elementary, but, you know, this is 2017. People read, what, greater than 70% of their information on the Internet. Mm-hmm. And on the web, you know, people use so much white space. Uh, we're not reading books where, you know, there's no paragraph breaks. Um, so in, include lots of paragraph breaks. Put lots of white space in your document. Um, don't Don't go wall-to-wall with text, you know, if your rule book is – a square, a, a large square like you'd find in a ticket to ride box, use two columns. Break up the information that way so you don't have to read all the way across the page. And that, I feel, goes a really long way um, to making it easy to read because you don't get fatigued. You know, Like you were just saying, I just read that and I lost myself in the first sentence of that eight-sentence paragraph. You know, <laughs> right? Um, so if you break up the information a little better, um, it's easier to digest. Same thing I tend to, at least uh, it's a tendency I fight against is to, you know, be more verbose or use longer sentences. And I, and I always find, nope, break this up, get rid of that semicolon, just just put a period there, Dustin, make that a new sentence, you know. Um, that way, you know, lose someone in the ins and outs of your five nested clauses in a given paragraph. Those two things combined with, you know, using everyday language where you can, uh, those would be like the three main areas I would find that go a long way toward making a rule book more teachable or learnable.
1: Yeah, and one thing, me personally, I I love about having white space in in rule books is I have a little bit of dyslexia. And so my brain, for whatever reason, switches words around, switches letters around, puts, you know, I I start the next line at the wrong place and I'll read a sentence just totally wrong, like wait. And so when you have white space, that happens less, or at least in my experience. There's more room for my brain to kind of comprehend what's going on and so i really like what you're talking about there and as far as like how do you how do you make it easy to teach but then also easy to refer back to now now in a perfect world somebody learns your game one time and they never have to look at the rule book again and everything's perfect but that doesn't happen and so how do you write a rule book so that people can easily re access that information
2: yeah that's that's where you know uh you'll come into the the usefulness of something like a glossary because you know I'll reference bottom of the ninth again. You know, we uh, teach all those keywords in line where, they, where they're where they relevant when the rule crops up, you know, in the in the rule book itself, in the body of it. But then also you got a glossary so that if you're trying to remember that or you're referencing it off of a card later on and you don't remember, um, you know, what a crush means. Uh, what does crushing a pitch do? Oh, it's right there as well. So you don't have to go back to where it was taught in line. But sometimes... It is difficult, right? There's some difficult judgment calls you've got to make on whether or not um, something is better for referencing or for teaching because there are moments where those things are at odds with one another right. and you've got to make a, a call on you know what you're going to do about it.
1: Now, what are your thoughts on having two separate rule books in that? Because I've seen some games that have kind of the learning rule book and then they kind of have the reference book. Any thoughts on that? Have you done that in the past?
2: I haven't done that and that's something I would – I would like to do at some point. I don't know that it's something I'll suggest, uh, really. Um I, I personally like having just a single a single document and if you need to have separate sections, like I talked about, if you need to teach a few core concepts, you know, at the beginning of your rule book, do it that way. But uh if you know, if a client ever comes to me and wants to do that, I think it'd be a fun challenge to take on and how to best, you know, manage the user experience across like a two rule book concept.
1: Yeah. As far as referencing or going back to rulebook, have you used like number systems? I've seen some rulebooks that have, you know, this is section one and this is paragraph three. And so it would be, you know, 1.3. And they'll kind of like number their paragraphs or number their sections to make it easier to reference. Do you do that or any other kind of system or do you have any advice for that kind of thing?
2: Yeah, that's like the classic uh, war game rulebook approach, I right. think. Like, you know, uh reference this table in five 5.3.1.c. <laughs> right. uh, I'm not in anything that extreme, but yeah, I do think that's – uh you know, when you've got, say, your your main section that you're working on is how a player takes their turn, that's the general concept, and there's five different actions they can take. Um, you know, yeah, number them. Uh, number each subsection. You know, the first action is move your player pawn to be, you know, use a generic example, uh, label that number one. And then your next thing, number two. And I find the same thing with uh, setup instructions. Oftentimes folks will just use a either just separate paragraphs or they'll use a bullet, a bulleted list or something like that. But I always push for using a numbered system because, uh, especially for setup, right? Because a lot of times you are, at least I find I do this and other people do as well. You read, you know, step one, and you like set the rubric aside to carry out that step. Right. You come back to it, oh, if it's a bulleted list, I gotta you know, scan the whole thing again to remember where I was. But if I see, oh yeah, I did one. Okay, so two is where I'm at. So that's a fun way too, but I agree generally with the concept that it's a useful way to kind of bookmark information for people to use, uh, you know, whether you use alphabetical numeric, you know, identifiers or use a numbered system. Uh, sometimes even I find it's really vital to be consistent with formatting for different levels of information. So if you know your five main sections of your rule book is, uh, the overview, how to set it up, how to play, what ends the game and final scoring or something like that. If they're all in caps and formatted at fourteen point font, that's great, you know, and then and then the information within that, those all use another one. It's just like, you know, every English paper you write back in the day and they tell you to write a good outline. That's how you do that. And you make sure that everything that's at the same level of outline uses the same type of formatting.
1: Yeah, that's great advice. As far as other ways to distinguish information, things like that, do you ever use like colors? Like for instance, I've seen some rule books and anytime they were talking about combat, it would be in like a red-ish you know, colored box and anytime they were talking about something else, it'd be in a yellow section. Do you do things like that or have any other kind of thoughts on other ways other than just numbering things to distinguish stuff?
2: Yeah, that's that's great. I, I don't like to overuse color, but using it you know, in just select ways, I think it is very valuable. For instance, Oftentimes, you'll hear players say that, "Oh man, I wish that that rulebook hadn't put that important information in the little sidebar or something like that." You know, and usually it's like a little thing that starts with "Note: such and such uh, does not apply in this scenario" or something. Uh, for me, as the rulebook writer, I always sympathize with whoever wrote such, you know, those rulebooks because I'm thinking, "Well, every, everything to me, everything in the rulebook should be read, right? <laughs> right. It, it's all it's all important information." But uh, if you don't want the player to miss, if it's that vital thing, you know, put it in red text important. I just did that in a rule book last night. We had, you know, and again, you don't want to overuse it cause then it's, it's not important text, right? If everything right. is colored, but uh, there was like three really important things that we wanted to make sure players didn't forget. So it all starts with a, a bolded red lettered, you know, little signal like, Hey, stop, read me. Yeah. I am important. So, and I, I've also started doing that with um, example text. Sometimes if, if examples have visuals that accompany them, that's great. Um, not, not every rule book will. So if you can set that in a different text, a uh, different color of text, then you know it's kind of a signal for your eye that, okay, we're, done, we're stepping away from the main narrative right now, and they're showing me what this looks like in a lived example. And then we'll go back to it. So it's just, again, another way to chunk information and to help the reader know when one chunk ends and another one begins.
1: Yeah, thinking about what you are just saying, Signal, with the setup, and and also thinking about making games more accessible and things like that. I saw, I I don't remember if it was a post on a forum or Twitter or something, but somebody was annoyed because the first line in the setup was, place the board on the middle of the table. And they were so annoyed, they were like, well duh, obviously, where else would I put it? And it's like, well hold on. If somebody was new, like brand new to this whole gaming thing, this whole hobby, they wouldn't necessarily know. Oh, I need to take the board and put it in the middle of the table. And so, what are your thoughts on that? As far as like really writing in such a way where you're not missing people, like you're using terminology, using and let's talk about that. Let's talk about terminology where you're really making things accessible, even even if it almost seems too simple to us as gamers. Yeah, yeah, you
2: got you got to assume a certain level of knowledge, right? But where where do you draw that line, you know, for instance, usually I, I won't explain what a, a hand of cards is necessarily, it'll just say, Oh, deal three cards as that player's hand or something, you know, cause card games are ubiquitous, right. Been around for, for centuries. So, so things like that, of course, you know, you don't necessarily have to define, but yeah, I, I think if setup includes that the main game board gets placed on the table, I'm always going to put that in there because, if I don't, then it, to me it almost reads like the setup instructions are incomplete. I always like to, this, this is something I like to do with setup instructions, is always make sure that I tell the whoever's reading the rulebook what to do with every piece that comes in the game. Because uh, I've had that experience, right? Like you, you set up everything, you go through the entire setup instructions in a rulebook, you're like, oh man, it didn't tell me what to do. I don't even know what these are. Yeah. What, what's this deck of cards? What are these tokens, you mm-hmm. know? So even if it's not something that is currently used, you know, it's not like it doesn't get placed in a specific place on the board or it's not cards that get dealt to players or, or something like that. Um, if it's just like a supply of tokens, uh, I'll put that as like one of the last things in setup, you know, set the uh, idea tokens off to the side as a supply, you know, and, and I usually include the number too. set the 28 idea tokens over here right. and that way the person who finishes up reading the rules is like, ah, so that's where those are supposed to go. And, of course, if you have a visual, you know, that just reinforces that because you can show those in a tidy little pile off to the side of your game board.
1: Yeah, it, it reminds me of MapQuest. I don't know if you ever used MapQuest back in the day, but before Google Maps, before Waze, all these, like, nice, wonderful apps on our phone, I would have to go on MapQuest and print off the directions of trying to go somewhere, and what was so funny about it, I would put in my address and then whatever address I was going to. And then the first like seven or eight directions was just getting out of my neighborhood. Or it's like, turn left on this road, turn. I was like, I know how to get out of my neighborhood. But what if I didn't? You know, and that's kind of the way I look at rule books. It's like, what if the player didn't know that the book, the, the board needed to be at the middle of the table? What if they didn't know these different things? Like, you need to put it in there just in case. And it was nice, you know, MapQuest put it in there just in case you forgot how to get out of your neighborhood or to get out of your town. Here's how you do it. And so just kind of, it's better safe than sorry. Better to have a little too much information than a little too little.
2: Well, you know what's interesting too is Oftentimes that sort of complaint about uh, board being placed in the center table, it's oversharing of information essentially is, is sort of like a, Oh, that's an accession to folks who don't play games. Right. But uh, oftentimes I find that it's uh, helpful for veteran players uh, because you know, if you're a veteran player, you've been exposed to all kinds of different types of game setups. Your average person who plays card games, they've mm-hmm. never played Hanabi. So right. it would never occur to them to pick up their cards Backwards, right? <laughs> right. Um, but someone who has, then that possibility is in the back of their mind. So you probably should tell them that uh, you know, they view their cards and nobody else kind of a thing.
1: Yeah, and especially if it's a rule where this is like game changing. Like Hanabi doesn't work if you don't play the game that way and it's against everything else you've ever played in games. And so I think it's real important to make sure that those kinds of rules really stick out. Now, you mentioned like, you know, putting them in red, flashing lights and anything, like, you know, but any other advice on especially rules that are pivotal in a game, any other ways you found that really help readers of your rule books to like really make sure they see that information?
2: Yeah, and you know, I'm normally not a fan of of repeating information in a rule book. Uh, there's kind of different schools of thought on that, but I tend to like if it's important information, then you make sure that the first time you talk about it, you know, it's it's uh you know got starring status. But um but sometimes it does matter if if other things are kind of gonna call back to that later in the rulebook. Um, I tend to if I'm gonna repeat information like that, I don't want it to seem like that's the first time I'm talking about it, but uh, put in a parenthetical that says, remember uh, and that's usually the, the the trigger word that I'll put at the start of that of that note is kind of like a remember. When you do such and such, this thing cannot happen. And I find that's useful too, from a referencing standpoint, right? Because if someone's trying to recall that rule and they they happen upon that spot in the rule book, I don't want them thinking that that's the definitive um, everything the rule book has to say about that particular rule, which is why I like to say remember because then that tells them, I've already told you this somewhere early in the rule book, keep looking you'll find, uh, you know, the the definitive word on this rule earlier on.
1: Yeah. All right. So let's get back into terminology. You know, one thing I've seen, I think you posted this on Twitter a while back, was how people writing rule books should use the word you. Like don't put when the player does this, you know, you need to put when you do this because that's how we talk. And so talk to me a little bit more about that. But then any other like advice on terminology and certain words and phrases that we should be using as opposed to other things?
2: Yeah, I'm definitely a fan of that second person address you. Um, there are certain games that are more difficult, right? If if there are games that are simultaneous action, those are a lot harder because all the yous are taking their turns simultaneously, <laughs> so uh, it's a little bit harder if you have interactions with your opponents. But anything that's turn-based, yeah, absolutely. Once, once you hit that on your turn section, the things you do on your turn, um, it's as if I'm talking to the player, right? That's how you write it because that's how that's how the person who's teaching the game is going gonna, is gonna to explain it to their fellow players sitting around the table. Uh, well, when you do this, you actually spend those resources instead of these. You know, you don't say the player. So mm-hmm. th- you're going to translate that anyway. Um, and it, it just flows better when the person who's reading it gets to read it in that form too. And I find it also makes it easier to identify when you're interacting with your opponents. You can say, if you say you, then you can simply say, your opponent, or an opponent, or a chosen opponent, when you're gonna talk about how you're interacting with other players, you don't have to say, the player, and then, and another player. You and opponent make for a nice kind of demarcation of player status, so, that's a good one. I definitely, uh, you know, that's a great way to not only make your rule book, I think, better, but also make it more readable. Like I said, it sounds like, you know, you're talking to your neighbor, uh, and that's a, a better way to do it than
0: you want, you want your
2: rule book to be technically sound, but you don't want to wrap it in technical language as much yeah. as you can help.
1: Right. Any other thoughts I'll, on? Oh, go
2: ahead. Well, you were going to say you know more more yeah. tips on on terminology. I don't know about specific terms, really. Uh, it, it's so case dependent on uh, what what the rulebook itself is is offering. But you know, I, I'll just repeat what I said earlier about uh, one one of the first things you got to do as you're getting serious with your rulebook. Is uh, and, I, and I usually do this when I come in and take over with a project, is I write out a list of what are all the, the keywords that this rulebook is trying to use in like a, a rule important sense. Um, and are there too many? You know, are there some of these that could be combined? Um, and just really investigate that and make sure that two of them aren't so similar that players going to get them confused. You know, I was just working on one game last week. There was something called, like, a cure and something called medicine mm. in the game. Very different, uh, you know, types of, of actions and components and stuff. And there was a, there was a better label for one of them um, that totally removed that ambiguity. So uh, just kind of really, you know, gr- grilling your, uh, your pool of keywords, making sure that it, you know, is up to snuff. Hugely important.
1: Cool, man. Let's talk about examples. One thing I love about rule books is when they give me all the technical language and then they say, so for instance, when Bob attacks Sally and then they kind of give you like a rundown of, you know, them rolling dice, almost like just a, a play-by-play of, of, you know, it's this fake game scenario they have put together. Do you use those in your rule books and, and kind of what are your thoughts on those?
2: Yeah, I like rule books. I mean, I'm sorry, examples. Um, I'll put in you know a, a decent number of examples if they're not already present and if the person whose rulebook it is is okay with me doing that. But they're definitely great, if, especially if you compare it with the visual. Because, again, you I know, got some folks, their best way to learn it is going to be reading it. Other folks, uh, the visual is where it's really going to you know, hit home for them. And uh, one of my pet peeves with rulebooks is if you're going to use an example, don't waste it. If you're going to have a visual, or even even if it's just a paragraph of example text, don't waste it. You know, if the if the rule is um, when you take this action, you've got to give a player three cards from your hand and they give you one back, or something like that. You know, sometimes I've seen an example paragraph that's almost parroting what that what that uh, paragraph just said, except they just sub in player names like <laughs> Bob and Amy or something. You know, you didn't you didn't illustrate it for me. You yeah. didn't illustrate that rule in action. Um, so I usually try to, you know, include in your example, make it interesting, show some of the decisions that are actually in, in play when you do that, you know, and it's also a great way too to help reinforce some of your edge cases. Don't always want to put in edge cases, but sometimes you're going to have that player, you know, that uh, astute rule book reader who's going to be on BGG asking this rule, you know, six months down the road. Yeah, it's kind of, ambi- you know, it's kind of ambiguous in the rules, but if you've, reinforced it by showing it, even if that wasn't the focus of the example, but it's just sort of like a, uh, you know, something else that's going on in the background that you can see that. And then when they read that, if they're paying attention, um, that'll be the reinforcement that they need and they won't have to worry.
1: Yeah. Now, are there any certain names that you always use for things like, for instance, I always use Steve. I don't know why I like the name Steve, but Steve is always a character in my rule book. And he's always (laughs) usually he's usually doing something detrimental. Like he's always the bad guy in the scenario. He's always like being a jerk or something like that. It's always Steve. And I don't know why it just is what it is. Do you have any names you like to use?
2: Oh, I like that. That's a that's a fun legacy. I don't have anything quite like that. Uh, I've heard folks say they use like ABC names. Mm. Um, and you can kind of illustrate player order in that way, you know, cause if we understand ABC as a progression, I haven't done that, uh, in, in most examples, but, uh, usually what I do is kind of a fun process is I'll just like put out a call on Twitter, <laughs> work on a rule book, need four example names, <laughs> give me uh, you know, two predominantly female names, two predominantly male names, and just kind of see what people come up with. And, uh, and I like to, it's kind of a little thing, but I like to use, um, names that aren't just just uh run-of-the-mill names you know because i think it's fun if uh you know six years down the road adelaide opens up that game reason (laughs) like ah i can see myself in the examples of this rule book you know so it's kind of fun to use uh not quite mainstream names and and also as a way to illustrate that our our hobby is not all north american or 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 western european you know so white
1: men you know yeah, exactly. <laughs> now you've mentioned pictures a few different times in different contexts. Now this is like maybe is more about graphic design. This is more of a graphic design thing. But when you're writing rule books, do you, do you are you really picture especially like with you know what you're just talking about with examples and not wasting them? Are you really picturing in your head okay this would be a great place for a picture of this you know certain scenario or something like that? I can, where how do you, how do pictures play in with your role as rule book writer?
2: Uh, A lot of times, uh, I'll write an example with the idea that it will become a visual as well as a a text paragraph, but usually I don't, you know, I don't have input on that necessarily on how the visual plays out, but it's sort of like I gave the production artist or the the graphic designer a blueprint, you know, as long as they understand what game pieces are, what they're called and that sort of thing. If they read the, the paragraph I wrote, um, you know, they'll use their, their graphic wizardry and, uh, Kind of poof. There's a visual of that in in action, and of course, you you like to assume that there's also going to be a, a example setup, you know, a big spread that shows you how everything looks on the table right before you begin play. And other than that, I don't I don't usually assume more graphics than that, um, and I'll just let you know if they put in more, that's awesome. Uh, you know, I, I love the sorts of graphics that's like anatomy of this card, uh, and it's you know all the different pieces of information on this card. This is what they're called. This is what they do. Um, so usually that's up to the graphic side of making the rulebook. That's like kind of at their discretion. And when I see that, I, I give a big cheer, you know, because, uh, it, again, it's simply making it that much easier to learn the game and and uh, teach it. But uh, it's usually the the examples where I'll kind of like – it's a little placeholder, you know, and if if I need to, I'll let them know these places right here would be great Great ways for, or great examples uh, for visuals.
1: Yeah, I think the picture of the setup is is a must-have. Like 100% of the time, you have to have a picture of the setup. Luckily, that that's more and more the case now. I mean, back in the day, there'd be rule books and it was just text. And good luck. Hopefully, you figure this out how it's supposed to look at the beginning. Uh, but another thing I've learned, and, and maybe you can kind of speak, maybe more in depth about this, uh, with some other cases that you've kind of seen this kind of thing. When my uh, the football game I've been working on when I wrote the very first rule book and I was actually doing bond playtesting, and and not necessarily like with me out of the room, I just wanted to give somebody a rule book and say, Hey, teach me the game. Like tell me how to play. And Is, I had the, the picture of the setup on page two and then the actual like step by step was on page three, not meaning to, it's just kind of the way it worked out with the layout. And so the guy teaching me how to do it, had to keep like turning the page and then looking and he's like, he looked at me and said, can you, can you make this like on the same layout where I could just look at and like not have to turn the page? I was like, holy, holy crap, I never even thought about that. Yes, that makes so much sense. Any other things you've noticed as far as pictures and text that it just makes more sense to have them in a certain layout or in a certain arrangement, anything like that?
2: One thing that's really great to do is if uh, you've got specific icons that, that are important in your game, whether they're on the game board or players are going to d- discover them on cards eventually, those sorts of things. And where you explain those in the rules, um, you know, just drop a little graphic, like at the start of that paragraph that shows, you know, I mean, you can put the the name of the icon too or whatever, but, but it lets them know, oh, you know, on a quick scan, if you're looking for that, you saw it on a card or whatever, uh, boom, uh, here's the paragraph that explains what this icon means. Or if you got a lot of them, it's kind of the same thing as a glossary, put in like an icon reference so that they understand what all those mean. So that's a great way, you know, it's not necessarily a um, – a huge stunning visual in the way that some of the examples are really great for illustrating the game in action. But if you've used icons as shorthand for rules, which is really what they are, uh, if you've, you've use them a good effect, then go all the way and also make sure that you're using them in your rulebook. Just discovered, uh, thanks to Randy Hoyt, who I know you've had on the podcast, a font called Font Awesome. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's using that in a rulebook that we're working on together. And uh, it's great because, you know, so many times People will they'll have a custom icon they made or something like that, and you try to put it in line in text, and uh, whatever word processing system you're using, doesn't matter how high tech it is, doesn't like it, you know, yeah. um, and, and trying to get the text to agree with it or to not, you know, space the lines too far apart just to accommodate your icon is really difficult, but or Font Awesome, you know, works with, with most of those platforms and uh, just seamlessly flows into the rest of your text, so... I was really happy when I saw that he had used some of those icons and and how nicely, or you know, how much easier it made my job compared to some of the icons I get to work with.
1: Yeah, Fine Awesome is great. I backed them on Kickstarter. A while back they've got a whole brand new system and things about to come out. I think it's in beta right now. It's about to come out with this like brand new version. And so yeah, it's another thing that's really cool. And if you're listening to this, I'll put a uh, a link in the show notes to get to them just to check them out, see if it's something you could use for your own rule books. Uh, as far as like streamlining and you talk about you know, using icons to make things easier and all that, let's talk about player aids, right? Do you have any uh, do you ever like write a rule book and go, Hey, designer, this this information needs to be on a player aid, like this needs to be on a card. Do you ever have that kind of input into things? That's a good question.
2: I'm trying to think back. I don't think I have ever like uh, made an explicit suggestion for a for a player raid quite like that. But um, sometimes, you know, if that doesn't exist in the game, then I'll try to make sure that the back of the rulebook um, sort of functions like that. You know, it's maybe not as great as having one for every player at the table, but it's something you could pass around when it's not your turn and familiarize yourself with. You know, uh, what those things are. But I think more and more. People are getting smart. Uh, designers, publishers, especially. Yeah, you know, I think it's more of a publisher-level thing to make sure that hey, this information would be great on a player aid, and that way they're not constantly having to page through the rules. And it's it's good. It's good information to have. And of course, you got to make sure that the language of your of your player aid lines up with with the rulebook. Uh, you know, that happened to me a couple of times. Rulebooks I worked on a few years back, where I worked on the rulebook, and I, I thought it was great. You know, we had smithed it to where we wanted it. Didn't realize there were, you know, player aids necessarily, and they still carried over like, you know, old keywords, old language uh, from an earlier version of the rules, and that kind of made it to publication. And of course, mm-hmm. there's that that dissonance where the players like, it's called this here, called mm-hmm. that there. What's going on? Yeah. So uh, I make sure now that you know, if someone's bringing their rulebook to me. You're bringing everything that holds your rules. Uh, you know, I'm gonna make sure that I see that whether it's text on cards, that's, those are just rules that are on, you know, other pieces of paper, so. Right,
1: or the same thing if you have rules on the board, you know, and you're wanting to make sure that certain information is real obvious just right there in the middle of the table. Uh, and, again, like you said, make it <laughs> make it all make sense together. Uh, I was playing Clank yesterday, played Clank for the first time, and what I loved about the back of that rule book, it gave me all the options or the different available things that I could pick up. And so, because I said, well, hey, I was talking to my friend who was teaching me again. I said, hey, what can I I pick up? Like, what are these all, you know, all these different question marks? And he just handed me that and said, here they are. Like, oh, okay, cool. And I could just kind of go through and look, and I didn't have to, like, find it in the rule book. No, there it is, the back page. I think the back page is a great place to put really good information, uh, especially information people are going to use over and over and over again. All right, so you mentioned a little bit about this earlier, let's talk about different learning styles. What do you do when you're writing your rule book to kind of help people that have different ways of learning? Some people just skim. They just skim through rule books and they think they got it. Some people read every single word and they meticulously, you know, try to figure out every word next to the other. So what do you do trying to find that place in the middle where you're you're reaching as many people as possible with different learning styles?
2: Yeah, the, uh, you know, putting in key visuals is a good one. I never used to think that I was a visual style learner, but I think I, I realized that I definitely am because you know, it makes a world of difference having great visuals. If, if you're uh, you know, absent visuals and just talking about text and layout and those sorts of things, for the skimmer, put in very carefully chosen, use your formatting well. right? There's so many different types of formatting you can use. If someone already knows how you know, this type of movement works versus this type of movement, I think of uh, Altiplano, uh, a brand new game that's out and Renegade's bringing it over. I worked with them on those rules. You can move with a cart or you can move by foot. And uh, the germane difference is that cart moves you three spaces by foot only moves you one. So, of course, you can read the entire paragraph and understand that. But also, you know, it says up to three steps. And that's an underline or up to one step. That's an underline. So at a quick glance, uh, if you just trying to refresh yourself on, you know, what's the difference between these two, ah, your eye is drawn to, you know, those types of formatting marks you put in.
1: Yeah, okay, cool. Man. Any other thoughts as far as, you know, learning styles or anything you've learned, maybe you've read some different things psych- I don't know, about psychology and things like that, that you would give advice for somebody writing a rule book and wanting to make sure they hit different styles? It's an interesting
2: question. I, I haven't looked into, you know, learning styles, you know, outside of the the – Board game industry space to see what people are saying, but it's, it's definitely something that you know would be worth looking into. I, I, I tend to just trust my intuition, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, you know, when, when writing, but again, a lot of it is just right write for the the lowest common denominator, and not saying that's a, a four year old, of course. You know, you don't have to write to a I, I think the common refrain for like military jargon or, or military manuals was like right for to an eight year old reading level. Yeah, um, I, I think that you know. Today's 2017's board games like the it's a little beyond that uh, as far as like having to explain some of the concepts that you know uh, people are coming up with to make for fresh designs but do it in as little words as possible you know the, the more words you've got the more room there is to be misinterpreted and the more just exhausting it is to read oh man I gotta read a 24 page rule book you know could this have been 16 could it have been 20. <laughs> So, yeah, I don't know about specific learning styles, but that's definitely something I'm open to figuring out and, you know, and kind of adapting my book writing or editing style to that.
1: Yeah, I think across the board, gaming in general, we're still learning. We've got a long way to go. I mean, this whole renaissance in gaming, I think it's just beginning. I don't think we're anywhere near the middle, let alone the end. And so it's going to be interesting as we learn more about how players work, how they think, how they learn. It's going to be interesting the games that come out of that that can really – not only teach games differently, teach games really, really well, but also create these really cool experiences based on how we as people think. I think movies have been doing it for a long time, I think video games have been doing it for a long time, and now board games are really getting into that, okay, let's talk about the psychology of players when X happens, or when Y happens, and then how can we use that within our game mechanics and the narrative of our game to create really cool experiences. I think we're just now getting into that in some really cool ways. Let's talk, let's talk about pros and cons, and this is a little bit of a loaded question, being a professional and all. But like, give me some pros and cons of working with a pro. right? If I've got my Kickstarter, you know, it's up there, it's funded, it's good to go, and now I'm really diving into like, I need to make sure this rule book looks good. Give me the pros and cons of hiring somebody like you to come in alongside and help me do that or just do the whole thing. I just hand you my notebook. Give me the pros and cons.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, I'll start with the cons. It, it costs, right? I mean, yeah. you're saving yourself – money up front by saying hey i'm just going to do this myself but uh depends how much you value your time i suppose whether it comes out to a, <laughs> a net gain or a net loss right but uh you know i don't know i think that's i honestly see that as really the only con um is that you know you're, you're hiring someone for their expertise you got you got to pay them for that but man so many pros right you you're saving yourself so much time of, of trying to kind of like backpedal and clarify later on and i, I think of you know, I'm on BGG a lot, and if there's games that I've worked on, I tend to like subscribe to their pages. And if rules queries show up, and it's not you know immediately addressed by someone uh, from the design team or or the publisher, then I'll jump in because usually I know the rules well enough to make that clarification. And you know, think of like with how our hobby is expanding, how many people are on BGG who actually play games? A Way smaller percentage than what used to be. Um, and so if you're getting you know, a lot of rules questions on BGG. Just think of all the people who had that question and didn't even know that BGG existed or who to ask. Right. Um, and they're not going to send an email to the publisher, you know, after going over to Martha's for Thanksgiving and trying to sit down and play a game, you know. So having just that, I guess, that shared or, or that, that well of experience, you know, oh, I've seen this, someone who's worked on, right, a lot of games, at least the manuals, you know, it's kind of that thing, right? Same reason why you'd value the experience of someone who's designed a lot of games. They've seen a lot of design systems, and they might be able to identify, ooh, this looks like a flaw in that design system. Let's fix that. Um, and I think the same thing for rule books. You kind of learn how the systems work, what things do and don't work, or you kind of spot uh, what's going to be a, a hang-up for the end user before they get to it, before the end user does. So you don't have to come out with those 2.0 rule books, you know. maybe it, I mean, it's never perfect. You're still going to have that short FAQ. That you want to publish after a year or so kind of thing but that, that's huge because you're saving yourself all the time of doing it I know that I can whip up a rule book probably a lot faster than most folks just because it's it's a uh, muscle memory at this yeah. point right I think I've uh, done about 40 this year so wow. far you know just that repetition and, and knowing hey this is this is a good basic formula I'm never afraid to deviate from the formula if the game calls for it but just having that sort of basic formula down and boom, let's load it in here. Now let's, let's look for how we can tweak this to match this specific game and the needs of a player to learn this specific game and, you know, any funky things that it does that uh, requires special attention on the part of the rulebook.
1: Yeah. Now, real quick, we're back up for just for a second. We're recording this in December. When did you go pro with this? When did you, like, really take this? And, I'm going to do this full-time.
2: In November 1st of this year. Okay, gotcha. So, so
1: a little over a month at this point. So you yeah. did 40 rulebooks Part time mainly, right? Yes. Gotcha. What do you What do you thinking as far as like going into 2018? What do you think is going to be your output as far as like if you did 40 part time, how many are you going to do full time? Just give me a guess.
2: My goal uh, that I set for myself for 2018, now that I'm full time, is to do 100. Yeah. Uh, in 2018, and I think I think it's doable. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of games out there, right? right. I mean, I, I saw some stats a while ago about how many games were added to the BGG database this year, and it was. Uh, thousands, you know, thousands of games coming out and might slow down eventually, but right now there's, there's a lot of games that could use a a professional touch. So it's fun to have all those games out there. You know, it's a little bit different than someone who's designing games because obviously no one's designing 40 games a year. Very few publishers that are putting out that sort of output in a year. But, you know, for me, I just have, I've got that one piece of the process, which is just make the rule book good. Design works usually already done. Graphics are somebody else's game publication running a Kickstarter. I just got to do the one part. So I get to do that a lot of times in a given year.
1: Yeah. And I'd say based on where the market's headed, you, you're going to have a lot of opportunities next year, you know, 2018 and even further down the road. And just listening to this, if you're working on a game right now, maybe you're working on a Kickstarter, you're work, you know, maybe you've got your own publishing company, whatever. And you're sitting there thinking, okay, I've got some extra money. Should I upgrade this component or should I put money in my rule book put money in the rule book, like hire a professional, hire somebody that does, hire somebody who writes 40 or a hundred of these things a year, as opposed to you who writes one or two, you know, that's, that's the thing you, you, you just get so much with a professional and it's, I I think it's going to be money well spent. Uh, Dustin, this has been awesome. You got any kind of last minute advice, you know, closing thoughts for anybody who's working on a rule book right now?
2: I I think, uh, you know, give yourself a good community uh, of people, you know, don't same thing with design. You don't want to design in a vacuum. I think some folks have, have gotten really good use out of just being open, like an open beta as you develop your rules, right? Uh, I remember this was maybe two, three years ago now. Matt Leacock, famous for Pandemic, of course, he was designing the uh, or writing the rules, because he's a, a darn good technical writer himself, for the Thunderbirds mm-hmm. co-op game that, it, that he ended up making. And he sort of did it like in an open beta. It was a, a Google Doc that he made public, and anybody could chime in like with their, with their thoughts on things, you know, and, and of course a good percentage of those, I'm, I'm sure he, you know, declined to use cause he had a specific vision for this. Same thing that I do sometimes, but, uh, there probably was some valuable feedback he got out of that. And for anyone less accomplished, you know, and less skilled than a, a Matt Leacock, um, you're probably going to get even more out of that, you know, and, and people will point out issues that they see, um, that you'll be thankful they did instead of, uh, someone who, you know, paid 40 bucks for your game and is now a little disgruntled about it kind of thing. You don't got to patch it after the fact. So so building good communities of people who are willing to do that, you know. Um, Jamie Stegmeier of Stonemaier Games, who's just one of the, the lords of Kickstarter. Now he doesn't use it anymore, but, you know, he's so knowledgeable about it. And uh, one of the things he always talks about as far as just uh, curating a community is, like, be giving back to other people because, you know, then they're willing to do the same for you. So if you have that community, as this is where I point people to board game Twitter all the time, it's great. It spans countries. You don't have to have a local playtest group to have people that you can chat with about design and then who you know might have good thoughts about how to improve a specific element of your rulebook. Doing that all the time on Twitter. You know, I'm in probably 1,500 conversations like that on a given week uh, where there's just a small issue someone's having. They're thinking, oh, let me throw this to the, the board game Twitter think tank, and they come up with a decent solution.
1: Yeah, for sure. What's your uh, Twitter handle in case people want to follow you?
2: On Twitter, I'm just Dustin B. Schwartz, keeping it simple.
1: Gotcha. One thing I think Matt and Jamie really understand, and this is what we all need to understand as designers, if your rule book doesn't work, your game doesn't work. You can have the greatest game in the world. If If people can't figure out how to play it, they're not going to play it. Well, Dustin, this has been awesome. We're about to head over into a bonus round. We're going to talk about going pro. Like Dustin just mentioned, he's a, he's a professional now. He's full time. He does this for a living, and so I want to hear his thoughts and, and his ideas how he did it, how he went from f- part time to full time, making a living, an actual living. Uh, I can see his house right now, where you know on Skype, he, he's not living in a shed. He's not in a van down by the river, and so he's doing okay. <laughs> but how he set himself up for success and, and how he's going to keep uh, that that success going into 2018 and beyond. But again, Dustin, really appreciate you coming on the show and good luck with everything you got going on. Yeah,
2: thanks for having me, Gabe. This has been great.